Hey there, Mako Reactor Rebels. Today, we're venturing into the sprawling world of Gaia with the legendary tale of Final Fantasy VII. We're going back to a time before we had video games that felt like movies, a time when a video game shattered expectations, turned players into heroes, and brought so many of us to the edge of our seats. As part of our episode today, we'll be diving deep into the life stream of its creation, its impact, and the legacy that it continues to weave almost 30 years later. So pocket that gill, grab your potions, and come join our party as we embark on another quest on today's trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 179th episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we'll tell you a story relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game or the people who've created it. It can be about a gaming console and the company that brought it to life. Sometimes it's about the technologies that make it all happen. With each story, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. Today, we're all going to learn about Final Fantasy VII, a little fan favorite around here, which was originally released for the PlayStation on January 31st, 1997. And I will say right off the bat that at some point during this episode, we'll definitely be talking about the plot characters so on and so forth so i'm just gonna give a spoiler alert i don't even know if i have to give spoiler alerts for games that are this old but i'm going to anyways that being said i'm david casson and as always i'm joined by my co-host who has been practicing eco-terrorism since he was a wee little boy he's my brother rob casson rob i'm gonna give you the soapbox go ahead and preach to the people well dave don't fuck up the environment, man. Like, I gotta live with this shit. So. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better than myself. Also joining us, repeat guest. Now repeat guest, eh? 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 Third time. Repeat guest, Ryan Shepard. Ryan, what's your take on Rob's eco-terrorism? Don't knock it till you try it. Yeah, that's my man. <laughs> fantastic oh all right we got a lot to talk about today i think we have a lot to talk about today but we're gonna assume we have a lot to talk about today so rob this week in gaming history well dave it's the week of january 28th 2024 and it's an interesting week in gaming history okay 42 years ago in february of 82 the Miss Pac-Man arcade rolled off the assembly line with many people claiming that they enjoyed it more than the original. 40 years ago, in 1984, Nintendo released Pinball for their Famicom system. Okay. And then 32 years ago, in 92, Bucky O'Hare was released for the Famicom. I loved Bucky O'Hare. I loved Bucky O'Hare. I loved the cartoon, I loved the video game. I still have the video game, actually. I can't remember if I played that one. I might, I'd have to see some gameplay to know. Ryan, do you remember Bucky O'Hare at all? Uh, that's going to be a negatory Ghost Rider. Man, that's okay. Can't win them all. Nope. Well, 28 years ago in 96, D 
Duke Nukem 3D was released to the world by 3D Realms. Now that was a winner. We did an episode on Duke Nukem 3D early in our run. I don't remember what episode it was, and I clearly didn't put it in the notes. But now I'm recalling we covered Duke Nukem, so go check out our archives. (laughs) Yeah. Game is fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Didn't I make you play it? You sure did. Yes, I did. Yeah, I made you play that 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 gem, that little gem, uncut gem. It was fun. Yeah, I like it. Well, Dave, a personal one for me, 20 years ago in 2004, Pokemon Fire Red and Leaf Green was released for the Game Boy Advance. They good ones? They were not, in my opinion, they were not <laughs> as good as the original Red and Green. When I edited it, I'm stopping it right there. <laughs> they were not. End of sentence. They were fantastic for a Game Boy Advance, but how could you beat the classics? It was just nice to bring him into a new generation and be able to keep moving your Pokemon forward. In 2008, 16 years ago, Super Smash Bros. Brawl was released in Japan, reigniting the always changing argument. Who is the best Smash character? Captain Falcon. I mean, he is top. I don't know if he's top <laughs> tier anymore, but I- I'm not. I'm going to have to go with Bowser, Dave. I just like Falcon punching everyone. Bowser's the way you Bowser bomb. You, you grab him and you Bowser side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Bowser side is legit for sure. <laughs> See, he gets it. He does. He usually does. He's, he's good for that. In gaming history, at the end of January 2020, the fantastically unique puzzler, The Pedestrian, was released on Steam. Ryan, did you get around to The Pedestrian yet? Uh, that's still in my backlog. You should try it. You, it's it's. Well, I mean, it's a puzzle game. That's our genre, for sure. And finally, Dave and Ryan, we are celebrating the third birthday of none other than Save Farty. Okay, third birthday of Save Farty. What? What? Pray tell. What is Save Farty? Well, Dave. Farty is a chicken with some serious problems. He's flatulent, but that's just the start of it. This is a game? It it is. Through a combination of bad advice and poor luck, he's got himself mixed up with some pretty bad people. And now his life depends on you. Okay. So the objective is to answer a series of observe and ridiculous trivia questions. And Farty is given a stay of execution. So Save Farty is a trivia game. Yeah, you know, you could call it that. Yeah. Sounds good. It's definitely an interesting one. It's one of those ones that uh, it can be a joint alone or with friends since, you know, it's like Russian roulette. It, it's exactly. It says here that Save Farty represents a real low point in worldwide trivia games. <laughs> where can we get where 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 is Save Party? And what platforms? It's actually available on the Switch Store. So Switch Store for all your Zelda and Save Party needs. <laughs> I've been introduced to a lot of good games through this podcast, but this might be, take the cake. This <laughs> this I couldn't have said it better myself. No, you couldn't have. And Dave Ryan, with that. 
that's another week in gaming history. So Dave, why don't you tell us about today's game? We are heading back to April of 1994, and Square has just released Final Fantasy VI in Japan. It's a pivotal moment in the Final Fantasy franchise. Final Fantasy VI is the first Final Fantasy game that is directed by someone other than series creator Hironobu Sakaguchi. And speaking of series creation, just a side note, if you like to learn about how the Final Fantasy series started, we covered its creation and the history of Square itself back in episode 121. So, of course, you can check out our archives at www.memorycardlane.com if you'd like to go check out that old episode. But we're jumping right ahead to 6 here. Final Fantasy 6 was originally released in North America as Final Fantasy 3. At the time, the original Final Fantasy, the Japanese Final Fantasy 2, 3, or 5, 4, 4, 5, 5. They had never been released out of Japan. Do you remember how, Ryan, did you play Final Fantasy back when? Like back in this period? When they originally came out, no. I was... uh, A late adopter? I was a late bloomer, yes. I did. And it was like so confusing because like you get inklings that the like that they were other versions in like magazines, but I was a kid, I never really understood it. It was very confusing. But yes, so two, three, or five were never released outside of Japan. So Final Fantasy VI was actually Final Fantasy III here. It's a smashing success. It was released for the Super Nintendo. They ported it over to the PlayStation. Then they started adding it to compilations. They re-released it a bunch more times in compilations. Before it even got to the compilations, Final Fantasy 3 slash 6, between the Super Nintendo and PlayStation versions, it sold like 3.5 million copies, which is pretty good for 1994 time period. So pretty much immediately after its release, right, Square sits down to talk about I mean, what else but what's next? They're not going to give up the ghosts on their Final Fantasy franchise. Heck, they still haven't even given it up to this day, you know? It's decided that they're going to carry over some of the leadership from Final Fantasy VI. Hironobu Sakaguchi, the creator of Final Fantasy, stays on as producer. One of the directors from Final Fantasy VI, Yoshinori Kitase, stays on as the director of this next installment. And as an industry, Video games were on the cusp of change. So this is 1994. You know, we've covered this time period recently because this is when the Sony PlayStation is in development. We covered that, I think, November, an episode back in November, roughly. We had covered the Sony PlayStation. So this is early 1994. The Sony PlayStation is in development, the early developmental stage, and everyone kind of has a sense of what's on the horizon. Initially, there's a lot of debate as to where their next project, their final next Final Fantasy project, is going to fit into this equation. Are they going to play things safe and stick to 2D pixel art, stick to what they know, what they're good at? Do they wipe the slate clean and come up with a brand new style of art? for the next generation of consoles, the PlayStation and the, you know, what was competing against it. 
Or do they just jump into things and they do they start developing on these early 3D graphics that everyone knew was coming with this new generation of hardware? So at first, this team dabbled with comfort and they sat down and laid down the basis to create a direct 2D sequel to Final Fantasy VI that was going to be on the Super Famicom, Super Nintendo, whichever you want to call it. They they sat down to write this direct sequel, right? So it's Tetsuya Nomura, character designer, battle director. He eventually was the writer on Final Fantasy VII. He recalled an early plot treatment written by Sakaguchi in a Polygon interview it's an article called The Oral History of Final Fantasy VII, published in January of 2017. You should check it out. And he says that in the first plot treatment that Sakaguchi-san wrote, he noted that it took place in New York. There was an organization there that was trying to destroy the Mako reactors, and a character named Detective Joe was investigating them. <laughs> nice. There were other characters, too. One member of the organization that was trying to destroy the reactor was actually the prototype character for Cloud. So even in the first plot treatment of Final Fantasy VII, what would become Final Fantasy VII, they had Cloud. They had the Mako reactors and and Avalanche, the organization, what would become Avalanche, the eco-terrorism, which we'll call it. But also they had New York and Detective Joe. Any of those sound familiar? Oh, so familiar. They've used them in other games, actually. Well, I don't know those other games. <laughs> Ryan, do you know where else they used them? I'm scrubbing my brain for Detective Joe. I'm coming up blank. That one was hard. I didn't know that one at all. Detective Joe is Lost Odyssey. But New York ended up being one of Square's next games that was popular at that time. Did you ever play Parasite Eve? That was also on the PlayStation, right? Yeah. Did you not yeah. do PlayStation at the time? Uh, I, I was a, a late adapter to that, so I, I missed a lot of the RPGs on the PS1. Parasite Eve is a fantastic action role-playing game. Like I loved it at the time. It was so cool. They made two of them. It's been on an ongoing list of games I keep thinking I want to cover eventually because it was one of those games. So, um, But yeah, so... You know, New York, they end up using in Parasite Eve. Detective Joe, years later, lost Odyssey. So they sat down, they wrote this plot treatment, right? And in the midst of all this, in the midst, while they're doing this, there is another team developing Chrono Trigger. Now, we covered this back in episode 50. That's when we covered Chrono Trigger. But at one point, at one point in the development of Chrono Trigger, it wasn't going so well. It was kind of a mess. And the one thing, you know, the, the kind of the emphasis that we went with that episode is that Chrono Trigger was developed by just a downright dream team. I mean, everyone that was involved in it was well-known, great game developers, great writers, great artists. Like, it's the dream team of development. So Square was heavily, heavily, heavily invested in the success of Chrono Trigger. So they pretty much shut everything down. They went all hands on deck. Everyone at Square was shifted over to development of Chrono Trigger to get this thing out the way they wanted it on time. So this plot treatment was kind of tabled for the moment. 
Now we know what happened with Chrono Trigger. Development was wrapped up in the form of, I mean, I gloat about it constantly, so no surprise this is coming from me. What I consider to be one of the greatest RPGs of all time. And while this is happening, while this is happening, while they're wrapping it up and people start to get to scatter to the ends of Square's Earth, there's another team that ends up going off and starts experimenting with 3D graphics. Hironobu Sakaguchi ends up meeting with a man named Kazuyuki Hashimoto. Hashimoto is a computer engineer. He has a background in 3D graphics. He worked for a bunch of companies doing computer graphics. And he comes to Square uh, and he helps Square set up 3D development. He helps them pick out what kind of hardware they're going to use for this environment. He helps them hire a team of engineers that can put it all together and he develops this 3D environment that they can develop it. At the time, that team knew what the future held, right? They're sitting there looking at the Nintendo 64. They're sitting there looking at the PlayStation. They know what the next generation of video game hardware looks like. It's pretty obvious that 3D development is what's on the horizon, right? I mean, to be fair, Ryan, do you remember this time period? We knew too, right? Like... That, that was about when the N64, when you could walk into Best Buy and see Mario 64 demo on the big screens, you know? Everything, you know, was, um, you know, all the magazines at the time. Back in the day, there were magazines, which were like web pages, but printed on paper. And they, they were sell, selling, you know, the selling the dream. The 3D real hard. 3D. It'll real be like hard. you're actually in the game. Virtual Fighter. Wasn't Virtual Fighter where like the first one, roughly? Like that's where we first got to see the inkling of these 3D polygon graphics, and then it just slowly trickled away from there. So mm-hmm. up until this point in time, Square and Nintendo had been thick as thieves. All of the previous Final Fantasy titles have been released on Nintendo platforms. So there's already this assumption that Square is going to build a game for the next generation of Nintendo consoles. But as we've heard uh, in other episodes where we've discussed this time period from other development studios, getting a development kit from Nintendo was very, very difficult at this time. And beyond that, it wasn't set in stone. During the development of the Nintendo 64 of the Ultra Project, the technical specifications on the console were fluid. They kind of kept changing. So Square decides that they're going to remove the console from the equation, and they just want to develop something in a 3D environment on these workstations that they've bought, they've spent all this money and time on, but they're not looking to make it dependent yet on any specific console. So they take their work on Final Fantasy VI and they create a battle sequence in 3D that features the main party from that game. And they go and they show off that demo at a trade show called SIGGRAPH, which was a new one for me. I had to look it up. Either of you ever heard of that trade show before? No. No SIGGRAPH. Ryan, that's a new one for you too? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you made that up. Yeah, I did. It stands for the Special Interest Group on Computer Graphics and Interactive Techniques. I, 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 I've never heard of it before. 
It's an annual co- conference. I looked it up. It was first held in 1974. It's an annual conference that's all about computer graphics, and they still hold it to this date. There's a 2024 one planned later this year. So this demo that they make, it's called Final Fantasy VI, the interactive CG game. It features, like I said, a battle sequence rendered in 3D. The user interface for this demo was gesture-based, meaning that if you drew one symbol on the screen, like a square, it did one thing. But if you drew a circle, it would do another. It wasn't anything that was on anyone's radar at the time, because let's face it, we've never heard of this show before. It's a trade conference. And it really doesn't normally have much to do with video games. I mean, it's computer graphics and it's video games, but it's not a gaming trade show, you know? So the kinds of people that show up to this trade show are high tech companies, military companies, you know, it just, they're, they're all walking past it going, Oh, that looks cool, but it's not register. It doesn't register. It's not a game to them. That's not what they're there for. With that being said, one of the persons that saw this demo was the engineering director at Silicon Graphics, Michael Jones. The workstation that Square had chosen that they were renting to do this work was a Silicon Graphics workstation. That was the golden center at the time. You know, we've talked about Silicon Graphics workstations before. It was what they made Donkey Kong Country on originally when they started bringing these 3D graphics to consoles. So he's interested in the application, right? One of his workstations is is like making a cutting-edge video game. And what he recalled while being asked about it was how unique it was. You know, at the time, you have all these companies making simulations using Silicon Graphics workstations, you know, space shuttle simulations and and airplane simulations and, and so on and so forth. But here at this trade show, Square produces a demo that was, as he put it, an anime. It was different. It wasn't a simulation. It was an art style. Again, this is all happening as Chrono Trigger wraps up. So, you know, they go to this trade show, make this introductions, and come back from the show with some positive feedback, a relationship with Silicon Graphics, and then the design team is able to get, you know, come all together now to figure out what Final Fantasy VII is going to be. And like I said, there's this long history of collaboration with Nintendo, so the team starts moving forward with the notion that the next game will be on Nintendo's next console. And like I said, to further that notion, the cigarette demo is on a Silicon Graphics workstation, you know, which I, I just said Donkey Kong Country. So Nintendo, Donkey Kong Country, Silicon Graphics, like in their minds, this is happening. This is all coming together. By this time, Nintendo had actually provided emulation kits for Square that could be run on larger Silicon Graphic workstations. So now that they have a develop an emulation, a development kit in their possession, a small portion of the Final Fantasy VII team starts to put together a little demo using the hardware. So Yoshinori Katase recalls that this small team was just a few programmers, about four to five artists, and they were given the task of animating a few characters. The, fir- the first characters that they were given were Cloud, Barrett, and Red 13. And typically, traditionally, when teams at Square start a new Final Fantasy project in a different scope, they usually 
animate Behemoth as a test model. So Nomura was given the task of creating Behemoth, modeling Behemoth, in this emulation environment. So for this, what's for all purposes is a Nintendo 64 demo, he creates a Behemoth model that takes about 2,000 polygons to render, they throw it into the Nintendo 64 develop environment, and this thing just bogs down. 2,000 polygons in the Nintendo 64 does not do at the time. So the frame rate was just unbearable. It was not acceptable at all. And it was about at this time that Sony came to Square, and they basically said, Hey, we're making the Sony PlayStation. We want to make 3D games on it. Are you interested? And then it becomes this back and forth dance between Nintendo and Sony. They start making prototypes that are kind of representative of what they're trying to achieve on the next gen consoles. And the team starts benchmarking each system and they're taking the information back and forth between the companies, right? Trying to be like, Hey, this is what's going on over here. Hey, this is what's going on over here. And the general consensus through all these interviews is that there was no comparison whatsoever. One of the character programs, Hiroshi Kawai, recalled a test in which they had a bunch of 2D sprites bouncing off the screen to see how many polygons you could pull out within a 60th of a second. He said that without any kind of texturing, any kind of lighting, the Nintendo demo couldn't even hit more than 50% of what the PlayStation was capable of. And that was just hardware performance, let alone storage. At one point during development, they even considered bringing this game over to the 64DD, the disk drive add-on for Nintendo 64, once those specifications were made available to them. And in retrospect now, even with the capacity of disks made for that platform, it would take an estimated 30 64DD disks to run Final Fantasy VII properly using the compression techniques that were available to them at the time. 30. 30 discs on the 64DD. That's crazy. That is a lot of disc. Possibly too much. <laughs> you don't yeah, say. I don't think we ever had what? What was the biggest game you could ever think of? Six, maybe? Uh, in terms of discs, I mean... I mean, three was a pretty common place for them to fall. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure there was a four disc one. I legitimately, I think there might have been one with a little more than four, but I know three and three, three was three and four weren't out of the question. So, <laughs> so to be fair to the situation, Square tried. There is all sorts of interviews mixed in there where people recall suggestions given to Nintendo. They were honest. Uh, with their feedback about the performance of what the Nintendo 64 provided. And my understanding of the situation is that Nintendo didn't want to address any of it. So as the design of Final Fantasy VII progressed, you know, you put that alongside the cigarette demo, and it's very clear what the team is looking for in terms of a next-gen Final Fantasy title. And as all this benchmarking is happening to further that argument, it becomes really, really clear that the Nintendo 64 just isn't going to work as a platform for them. And on top of that, as you can imagine, 
Sony is selling them hard, right? Bringing Square, the creator of some of the greatest RPGs, over to their platform would be like a major coup. So they're offering up everything to Square. They basically said, look, we're going to market this game like there's no tomorrow. We'll handle the, all the public relations that's about to be in front of us because we understand what this means. And we're going to cut you an amazing deal on per unit royalties that you would have to pay us. I mean, they basically made Square a deal that would be impossible to refuse. I mean, as we know now, Square didn't. <laughs> right? True. They made what at the time was an incredibly controversial decision to move development of Final Fantasy VII over to the Sony PlayStation. Nintendo messed up. Yes. Well, this is fascinating. So we're going to be moving on from Nintendo at this point, but you should know that it basically eliminated any relationship between Square and Nintendo for quite a long time. There are multiple people quoted as saying that they weren't even able to step foot in Nintendo's offices for at least four to five, the four, four or five years following this. Wow. There's a whole story around just this alone. That's, I mean, it goes even deeper and it's really worth doing some research. If you're interested, it, it, it's quite, it, it's quite an interesting story. And speaking of interesting stories, have you ever considered starting your own podcast, but just don't know where to start? Do all the different options confuse you? Are you concerned about the complexity of having to record your software using software A, but then editing it using software B? Well, we have a simple solution for you, thanks to the all-in-one podcasting suite of tools offered by our friends at Zencaster. With Zencaster, it's super easy to record a podcast. Everyone logs in using their web browser, and you just start recording a high-quality podcast right away. It allows you to record up to 4K video with your guests. And with Zencaster's multi-layered backups, you always have the highest quality recordings, even if the connection is unstable. With Zencaster, you never have to worry about what you sound like. Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound always buttery smooth. It automatically removes all those ums and ahs, gets rid of those awkward pauses, you can set the right podcast loudness. You can reduce the background noise. You can do all of this with a simple click of a mouse button. And if the thought of podcasting overwhelms you because you think you need tons of different tools and services, relax. Those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute it to all major destinations. So if you'd like to start your own podcast or you want to take your current podcast to the next level, we've got a deal for you. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use our offer code memory card lane and you can get 30% off the first month of any Zencaster paid plan. Sign up for Zencaster today and you can experience the same ease in producing your own high quality podcast as we do each week. Go out and share your idea with the world. Ryan, do you... Did you play this game, Final Fantasy VII, when it first came out, or were you introduced to it later? I came, I came to this one later. This was, this would have been uh, after the PS2 had originally came out. Uh, I, I had been growing up, uh, you know, mainly on Nintendo systems, and then, yeah, you know, kind of got my eyes opened and started exploring. 
uh, thanks to a good friend who lent me the player's guide for Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> so you did have friends that were into it at the time, though? Did you, like, have PlayStation friends? I did. Do, were they hyped for it? Do you remember that period of time? Absolutely. No, that's all they would talk about. I mean, it was everything. <laughs> You said the magazines. It was in every one of those magazines too, except for Nintendo Power. They were they were angry. <laughs> Didn't I don't remember seeing them in that one? Yeah. No, no, no. For whatever reason, they just weren't covering it. <laughs> yeah, man, we were hyped. Like once we started to get to see the screens for this, like. It was next generation. Like we're we're here. Like look at this. This is gonna be cool. You know, that's fantastic. So Square, you know, Square makes a decision to produce the next Final Fantasy on the Sony PlayStation. And with that, it's you know time to just move forward and make it happen. You know they have a reputation for letting their teams make games around very clear visions. Sakaguchi in particular is pretty much given carte blanche, so to speak, to do as he pleases. But for many of the games up until this point, there were financial limitations imposed on the teams at Square. Here, though, we're sitting in the wake of Final Fantasy VI. We're sitting in the wake of Chrono Trigger. And to be honest with you, they're pretty much taking a page on Nintendo's book right now, and they're practically printing money in the Square offices. And of course, they had just made the the risky decision to cut ties with Nintendo, and they need to they need to show they need they need to show that it was the right decision, right? So this team is given absolutely every resource available to make this game happen. Square goes out, and they purchase hundreds of silicone graphics workstations. That's not an exaggeration. I found a, I, I, God, I wish I would have marked it down. I actually saw uh, an interview with the guy who was doing purchasing at the time. And the number is literally in the hundreds. They hire teams of programmers and artists. They're afforded so many resources that other studios who are working on early 3d games didn't have, you know, when, this game was finally released. It was one of the most expensive video game projects ever. At the time, Square spent about $40 million on it, which if we adjusted for today would be about $76 million adjusted for inflation. I mean, that's still a lot of money by today's standards. I mean, for a AAA, I guess it's pretty average, but still a lot of money. They grew the team. That was working on the game very quickly from this point in development. No joke. The development game on the game took only about a year. They invested in a team that at this point was only 30 people. And by the end of development, they had grown to about 150 people. Now, with all this in mind, let's not assume that the PlayStation was just a plug and play solution for everyone working on this project. The, SGI workstation that they developed the SIGGRAPH demo on had 256 megabytes of memory alongside 256 megabytes of texture memory for graphics. 
the Sony PlayStation, the first Sony PlayStation, had two megabytes of system memory and 500 kilobytes of texture memory, right? So the team knows how to work in 3D, but they need to learn how to make it work with much, much smaller hardware specifications. And at first, that was a struggle because Sony was only making certain development libraries available to their development teams. Now, we just heard that recently. We heard the same limitations echoed when we learned about the development of Gran Turismo, which was only a few episodes ago. And just like that team ended up doing, Square basically had their developers disassemble Sony's code to figure out how to access the hardware directly. And by doing so, they were also able to achieve some of the performance goals that they had set up for themselves, which they wouldn't have been able to hit otherwise. And to be fair to Square 2, or to be fair to Square and, and to Sony and all of them, Square would eventually clean up their documentation on how they achieved this, and they would put it all together and they would make that available through Sony to other PlayStation developers. Their progress throughout development was marked by major events that many different members of the team recall. One of the largest was when the team nailed down how to sync the real-time graphics up with the full-motion cutscenes for some of the story sequences. There are interviews in which people recall first seeing the one at the very beginning when the real-time model of Cloud jumps onto the full-motion video rendered moving train at the beginning of the game. And while these teams are all working through all of these technological issues, the design team is hard at work. They're looking to make Final Fantasy VII one of the more memorable stories in gaming. You know, we had talked about the original scenario that was written by Sakaguchi taking place in New York and involving Detective Joe. But when the team returned from making Chrono Trigger, Katasi, the director, took the helm and he began to shape what was to become of this game. He sat down with Tetsuya Nomura, and the two started to rework the entire plot. Elsewhere at Square, on a different team, they had just finished production on a game called Bahamut Lagoon. And the director of Bahamut Lagoon, Kazushige, the director of said game, Kazushige Nojima, was asked to join the Final Fantasy VII team as a scenario writer. So he came onto the team, and together, they all began to flash out all these ideas and bring them together into one cohesive story. Now, according to Sakaguchi, he was still mourning the loss of his mother. She had died during the development of Final Fantasy III, VI, and as a result, he had the theme of life woven through his early pitch for the game. And when his scenario was picked up and it began to evolve, that theme remained in place. But at some point they realized that it wasn't enough to just make life a theme in order to depict living. You have to depict dying. And at some point you have no choice, but to portray death. And while working through this concept of bringing balance to that theme, it was Numura who suggested, uh, who suggested killing off the heroine, right? 
And we all know that one because it's one of the most famous deaths in video gaming at this time. Uh, that, of course, is of the heroine Aerith. At the time, Aerith was the only heroine in the story. But once the team decided to kill off their only heroine, they determined that they needed a second. And so that led to the creation of Tifa. <laughs> second best, baby. As for the death itself, it was designed to be sudden and unexpected as they were hoping to create a feeling of great emptiness. I mean, in, in my experience, that, that kind of you know, action was you know, pretty unprecedented. Anything it was. That, you know, you'd have games kind of you know, hint at that, but, oh, they survived, it's okay. So you kind of expect that. And suddenly, no, you're gutted. And so is she. That's a fantastic, well played for starters. That's a really great point. I can't recall a game, and I'm thinking, I'm racking my brain against it right now. I mean, I'm, there might, there, it probably does exist, but I'm racking my brain. I don't recall a story before this that killed off its main character in such a drastic fashion at all. I mean, just killing off a main character was unheard of, let alone like this. I, I'm, I'm trying. I'm coming up empty. I've had games where there's one of the characters that does a heel turn, right, and becomes an antagonist. Oh yeah. But, but, but this is you know, totally different from from. Yeah, that. I mean that that that's found in the history of Final Fantasy itself. I mean that that's they've done that. It's just I, yeah. I mean, I've got nothing to where like a main character was just straight up murdered like this. Yeah, the no, there were. I mean, you lost Chrono Trigger, Secret of Mana, Secret of Evermore. I mean, there's little bits and pieces there, but you're right. There was something about this one. There was something about this one that did just gutted you. It was. It was. I mean, it was out of nowhere for starters. I. I mean, it's not like it is now where things get ruined constantly for you. It would be like if you're playing Pokemon and your Charizard, like, murders your mom. <laughs> what? Yeah. What? It would be very unexpected. It, it, <laughs> it definitely would. <laughs> it would. Yeah, it would. It would be just like that. That's I've never heard it. I've never heard it any said any better. So the event that we're discussing, the death of Aerith, was thrown into the middle of a storyline that had existed pretty much from the rework, which was the pursuit of the main baddie, Sephiroth. There had never been another storyline in the series, which had yet surrounded the pursuit of a single protagonist. So the team felt that writing this scenario around the concept of, of pursuing a, a main baddie like this would provide a tighter story and provide something new to Final Fantasy fans. So they, they took this, they fleshed out some of the original concept into Avalanche and Shinra as the opposing organizations. Out of all this, Cloud's backstory was written along with his relationship to Sephiroth. And speaking of relationship to Sephiroth, Aerith was actually originally conceived as Sephiroth's sister, which influenced the design of her hair, which is why they look similar. At one point, 
They actually wrote her to be a previous love interest of Sephiroth to deepen her backstory, but they later swapped him out with Zack as they fleshed out that whole storyline. So she went through some changes too. When I played this game um, back in my day, you know, the U.S. translation of her name was Eris. Yes. And so every time I hear you say your name, I know it, I know in my mind that it's right, but it sounds like you have a lisp. Yeah, it's the same for me. I have to force myself to say Aerith because you're right. It's Eris to me, too. Like, 100% correct on that. Like, I, it's always Eris, but, you know, I'm, same way. And now, unfortunately, like, as much as we want it, we and we'll get to this in a second. We have a whole like universe of development. They didn't just stop here, right? We now have twenty plus years in this the, what's called the world of Gaia, and she's Aerith through and through in this whole world. You know, circling back to where we started, the concept of life and death. At one point, Katase and Nojima wrote a scenario in which most of the cast was actually going to die before the final battle. But that was eventually scraped because they felt they really liked that moment where Aerith died. And they felt that killing off everyone else at the end would really undermine the impact of that moment. Throughout all of this, Nojima, that scenario writer that came over from Bahamut Lagoon, he was tasked with bringing everyone's ideas together into a cohesive narrative, right? So they're all coming up with these and he's he's got the job. Of putting all the pieces together. While doing so, he also actively worked on making the characters more realistic by occasionally, his way to do this was occasionally having them argue and raise objections. And what this ended up doing was it slowed the pace of the game down and it brought depth to all the characters. And frankly, that was one of my absolute favorite things about Final Fantasy VII. The one thing that always stuck out in my mind, what I loved about it more than anything else at the time, was I felt that, like, you learned, like, every, like, there was a town for everyone, right? You went to this person's birthplace, and this person's birthplace, and this person's birthplace, and you learned all about them, and the character development was fantastic, and it made you invested in your entire party. Towards the end of development, Matsado Kato, the scriptwriter for Chrono Trigger, and later on, Xeno Gears. Um, so we've talked about him more than one episode. He was brought in to help flesh out some of the less important story scenes, such as when Cloud falls into the live stream, as well as Cloud and Tifa uh, talking on the dawn of the final battle. So they all worked together to flesh this whole thing out. They threw it over to the programmers and the artists who all made it a visual reality. And like I said, for the better part of a year, all these 150 people or so worked tirelessly to make Final Fantasy VII a reality. And while that sounds like the potential for an awful environment, you know, the crunch time that we've heard throughout all these other development stories that people complain about time and time again, this one's different. The oral history that various people uh, have that they describe during this time period is that the atmosphere at Square is exhilarating and exciting. The whole team was excited 
at the prospect of what they were working on. They were excited to see the story come together. They were excited to see every technological hurdle that they jumped over. And as a result, they were all devoted to this cause, making it not feel like your typical crunch time development atmosphere. Many members of this team talk about thinking about this game constantly. They were excited to get to work every day and make these ideas happen. And while there are many, many, many other aspects of development that we can talk about, I think for the sake of time, I'm going to leave it there. Maybe we'll do another episode on this one day to talk about the others. Who knows? But as we know, they put all the pieces together and they released Final Fantasy VII in Japan on January 31st, 1997. It came to North America later that year in September. And well, it was an absolute success, right? Uh, To give you an idea on how much of a success within three days of its release in Japan alone, it sold over 2 million copies. Let me put this into perspective. The initial release of Final Fantasy VI, as we talked about at the beginning of this, it ended up selling 3.5 million copies over, say, three or four years. And Chrono Trigger, which is arguably more popular than Final Fantasy VI, took about two months to sell 2 million copies. But Final Fantasy VII did it in three days. Which is... Wow. That is absurd. It's cool. It's damn impressive. And those other games you mentioned, yeah, were on systems with large install bases near the end of its life. And There's no doubt that the success of... You know, Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger added to the hype around a new entry in the Final Fantasy series. You know, everyone wanted to see what Square was going to do next after those two excellent games. And Final Fantasy VII was marketed really, really well, right? It looked good. It sounded good. It was plastered everywhere. We were all very, very, very excited for its release. And since... There was only about eight months between the Japanese and North American releases. There was lots of coverage. We all knew what to expect, which in today's day and age might have ruined it for some people. But back then, I think they were very nuanced about what to offer up. So there was still very much a lot for all of us to be excited about. I, you know, talking about the the, the spoiler, the Aerith death. I mean, I feel like in today's day and age we all would have known about that with eight months between releases. But back then, uh, complete surprise. (laughs) Complete surprise. It's Ryan, this could be easy for you. It's, it's well, Rob, Rob, you can, you too. Is it, it's hard to fathom, right? How far we've come that there was once a time when like we could play a game and still be like surprised by it. Because, like, I know that can happen now, but it's becoming increasingly difficult. Yeah, there's no YouTube giving you, you know, or, or Twitch, right, where, where you can, you know, get spoilers that way. And also just the, you know, the web is, you know, back in 97, yeah, finding someone from Japan uh, that was typing in English itself would be challenging, unless you knew where to look. I... I remember you talked about having the player's guide. I eventually did have the player's guide, but when this first came out, we had GameFAQs. Remember GameFAQs, the website? Oh, yeah. 
Absolutely. Text-based guides. And that is what I had to get through Final Fantasy VII. Uh, and I don't even think we used it the first time. The first time I remember playing, I mean, this game, I sat next to my best friend Jeremy at the time on the weekends. And we played this like, we. I mean, I, I think there was one night we didn't even sleep. We stayed up all night playing this. That this this was this was fantastic. This was this was. I know we've talked about it again and again, so I'm not going to beat the dead horse because we've covered this time again. But this game was special. This game was real special. It still holds some of my personal fondest gaming memories of just like being so excited to play a game and to experience something new. And to find the secrets, like the hidden characters, like Yuffie, uh, you know, for instance. And then the bosses, like the optional bosses, because they were they were magical too, like Ruby and Emerald. And I don't have a lot of these type of experiences after this the same way. This one was fantastic. One thing that, that comes to mind for me, like, you know, that listeners might not fully appreciate, like early 3D graphics are hard to love. It's you know, true. The, the earliest yeah. 3D graphics, you know, you'd look back at, at NES and, you know, like, like the eight and 16 bit graphics eras and, you know, they're charming and, you know, and, and all, but the early 3D stuff was really hard to love. It, you know, in hindsight, you go back and play the originals and it's like, Oh, that's very painful to walk, to look at. Uh, but Final Fantasy VII, just the art style really accommodated that. And, you know, all, all the backgrounds were just gorgeous to look at. And, and that really helped contribute to the you know, that uncanny feeling of you know, feeling like you're in this totally other world. It did. It was. And it it's aged. I'm not going to pretend that the graphics and the art style are completely isolated from having aged the same way like Chrono Trigger I feel has for instance you know but there's still something about there's still something about this that's special and I guess for me it's a lot of nostalgia admittedly I I remember I used to play this every year for a long time I don't anymore but this was a game I used to pick up every summer and play through and, and it's one of those games that I like, I equate with time. Like I, 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 you know, it's what 30 hours, 40 hours to get through it roughly. And how, like the first time I ever played it, that felt, that felt forever. And then as I got older, that became less and less and less of a commitment to where like, I feel like nowadays it's pretty easy to fly through this game. Yes. How long to beat? What is the actual time on this? Anyone want to take a guess? 38 hours and 20 minutes. Mm, 50, 48 hours. So main story is listed at 36 and a half. So I wasn't too far off. Main plus extra is listed as 50 hours and completionist is listed as 81 and a half hours. Anyway, this one was fantastic. We're here 27 years later. We're still getting excited for releases in the series. So it's legacy lives on. The popularity of Final Fantasy VII convinced Square to continue to create content in its universe. That started with a mobile game called Before Crisis and a movie called Advent Children, which were released in 2004. 
since then. There have been multiple video games released in the series. There was one other animated entry to the series. Uh, and right now, we are in the middle of a complete remake of the game, uh, Final Fantasy VII. We got remake... Is it two years now that we got remake? I think so. Or three years. Was it a 2020 release? I can't remember exactly. I got, I mean, I bought it when it came out. I just can't remember if it was a 2020 or 2021. We got remake to begin with, and next month we get rebirth. Isn't it next month? I think it's the end of next month. Remake was in 2020, yeah. Okay, so remake was 2020. Uh, so basically, they their plan is to take that original game and split it up into a trilogy. They remade it with modern graphics. The story is the same, but not. You know, they've they've expanded on things and and cut out other things, and and I'm not mad about it, frankly. <laughs> I'm not mad about it at all. I don't know what else can you say. People are in so in love with this world. And these characters after all these years. And if there's nothing else that speaks to how great of a game this was, then I I don't know I don't know what else does, frankly. So it's one of those games that you rarely ever hear people talk bad about. Unless someone really wants to just crap on things, you know? That's about the only time. When someone just wants to be mean for the sake of going mean. If you're curious, the original Final Fantasy VII would go on to sell about 14 million copies throughout the years. It won many Game of the Year awards back in 1997, and it's commonly recognized on lists for greatest games of all time. So, there you go. Square Strikes Gold once again. That eventually made its way to other platforms, I think, too, right? They did do a pretty infamous PC port of it. A pretty infamously bad PC port of it. Which I don't really think was that bad, to be honest with you. But they did. I think that's it. I don't think it ever got released anywhere else but but PC and PlayStation, if I'm not mistaken. I believe there's a version on the Switch. Oh, that would make sense. Yeah. That Yeah, that wouldn't have even registered Some, to me. Sometime in the last few years, yeah, along the time that the remake was doing, the Switch got the uh, port of the original. Probably that Steam. same. It's probably all it could handle. Steam's got the PC port. That's um, because that's where I have it. So I'm pretty sure it's got the PC port at least. Yeah, that's fair. I at least do know that for a fact. Yeah, I think the I think the PC port was done by like. Eidos or something like that. I'm going to get burned for that one. I couldn't tell you. It's got some weird. It's got some weird um, developer. Here, let's see real quick. Let's see if my memory is good or bad. Final Fantasy 7. Windows. Eidos Interactive. Hot damn. Look at me. All right. Well, there you go. Square Strikes Gold once again. Lot of other well, I guess before I move on, Ryan, is there anything that I didn't cover? Anything you want to add to this conversation? Chocobo racing. Oh my god. <laughs> Just the casino in general, man. Like Yes. That 
can, again, a, another good con, like another game that just has a place to go and chill out and just play mini games in it. Like, I don't remember that otherwise, too. Like, that was that was a fantastic concept. Yeah, the, the amount of content you got in this game. Uh, yeah, it's on three discs. Well, guess what? You know, now they're remaking it and they have to make it into three different games. <laughs> I didn't think about that. <laughs> yeah, no. And uh, I, I remember, you know, watching a, a, a friend's brother just do chocobo racing and breeding for hours. Yeah. Uh, yeah that trying... was. Oh, the yeah. breeding, huh? Trying to get the gold. Wasn't the gold or black? Was it gold or black that was the, the good one? It was gold, wasn't it? I. Yeah. It, my brain is mush. I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember either. I, um, but there was one, the one color that you wanted that was faster than everything that way you, that you had to breed your way into, into it. Yeah. The casino was, I mean, that's what I mean. There was just stuff everywhere, like with the optional characters and the casino and like, just, I mean, you know, and then you got different methods of transportation you know, you had the vehicle and then you had the airship that lets you go everywhere and you could go back to all the old stuff and it, it and the throwback to old characters like Sid. Yeah, man, this one, I'll, I'll never get tired of talking about this one or I really won't. I, I also feel the need to give a shout out on the soundtrack. Just freaking phenomenal. Oh. Not only is the soundtrack phenomenal, I have like they like when they first started doing the Final Fantasy like concerts, like taking it to the orchestras from town to town was this is probably the I mean, the game in the series that they started doing it. And I've seen it a couple times afterwards, and it's fantastic. I have this sound. That's actually a good point. I loved the soundtrack. I own this soundtrack, like a collector's version of the soundtrack somewhere. This one was great. And I'm not going to pretend that there aren't other Final Fantasies that I've loved since. But I do think that this is still my favorite. I don't think one has quite captured like the feelings of awe and 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 the depth of everything for me personally. So. This is still my favorite. Have you gotten into the, the remakes? I have. I have. And I like them, but I don't think they replaced the original for me. So yeah, that's fair. I do really like them. I'm not going to pretend I'm not glad to see this all done in a modern engine with the store, like with with the like how they expanded and moved things around, like narratively, you know. Yeah, but i I don't think that they've re- I, they don't replace the original for me personally. So. That's okay. When I first played this game, and you can cut this if it's not, if it's if it's too long. When I first when I was first playing the game, I remember you kind of start going through the the sectors of, of the city, right? And I, I, I'm for them like a picture in my mind. It's like, oh, well, naturally we're going to go all the way around the city in each sector, and then that'll be the end of the game. You know, I, I didn't have. Uh, you know, big history with the series. And so that this was kind of, you know, the, what I was imagining. And then, you know, it took total left turn and all of a sudden there's this enormous world for you to go explore. And it's right. just, yep. you know, I, 
paralyzing almost in terms of how how free that was. I know. I remember like when you take that motorcycle over the edge and, you know, you're off of Midgar onto the plates and you're like. And I remember, too, that swamp that you had to cross had that monster that you had to avoid. There was no way at that point at your strength like where, where most of us were leveled, that you could defeat that monster. The whole point was to run. And I remember not knowing that at first and being really frustrated. And then you enter the caves and you meet the Turks for the first time. Yeah. I can, I, I can follow this one really well. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, this one, like I said, we've said it. This is a, this one... This is a, a good one. Also, I think a right time, like a really good time for our generation, right? Because we were all 10, 11, 12, 13, 13. I don't know, 97. Yeah, roughly. I played it a little bit older, uh, but but still, regardless, just yeah. fantastic memories yeah. with this. That's true. You didn't hit it. It's original time. But yeah, it was just a good time. Right, to- right time for all of us in our formative gaming years. How's that? That's right. Awesome. Well, we've talked about a lot of games, Final Fantasy VII included. You know, we we covered Duke Nukem in the beginning and Chrono Trigger and I I don't know, a bunch of others. They're all games that we've done episodes on. You know, we do weekly episodes. There's a lot more of these gaming stories for you to check out if you're interested in learning more about gaming history. And, of course, you can do so by checking out our podcasts anywhere that you listen to podcasts or of course by checking out the archives on our website which is www.memorycardlane.com rob what else can people do on our website well dave you can see a calendar of our future episodes you can find a link to our discord where you can come hang out with dave and i and tell him all the things he got wrong or pronounced wrong during our episodes uh, you can find a link to our Patreon where you can help support us and get access to ad-free and unedited versions of our episodes. And you can find links to our social medias where I can be found on several platforms as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor and Dave. I can be found on various platforms as David is wrong each week. We'll tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It's be about a game console technology a person just some topic that i find relevant to this gaming week while doing so we hope to teach you something new about the game what it took from the world i actually knew about the topic this happened to be a game but i want to teach you something new about it what it took from the world as its inspiration or what it gave back to the world in its legacy and the best part about getting to do this week after week is that as we do research for every episode we learn new things Rob comes on, Rob learns new things. Ryan comes on, hopefully Ryan learns new things. It's this fantastic cycle where we all learn new things and we get to teach you. And that's why we do this week week after week, to learn new things and to teach people about them. So one of our favorite things to do as we wrap up every episode is to talk about what we've learned each week. So Ryan, I'll start with you as our guest today. What did you learn today? I did not fully appreciate the cost of, of one single SGI workstation is measured in the tens of thousands of dollars. And you said they bought hundreds of them. And so that, that amount of money just spends, sends my brain spinning. 
I mean, $40 million at the time. They spent $40 million in 1995, six, seven dollars to make this game. And a lot of it clearly went into those workstations. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it. They had the money. This the one thing I will say is they finally had the money. They were sitting in probably their strongest financial position at the time. And they, you know, made the risky decision to cut from Nintendo and said, hey, we're all in. They dumped all of their all their finances. They they rolled the dice into this game. Luckily, it paid off, you know. Definitely paid off. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. How about you, Rob? What did you learn today? Well, I think my favorite takeaway from this is when they were trying to develop it for the uh, 64 DD. Yeah. And that it would have taken 30 discs because that's <laughs> just hilarious. And it's it also it's just crazy to think how they were able to cut that down so much with the newer technology and just shows like how far we've come since even just back in this time to, to cut it down from what would have been 30 to, you know, I, I forget how many you said the act, the final three, the final three game did. was three. Discs. I mean, there you go. I mean, they, they cut it down a well, tenth of the way to, to be fair. The 64 DD wasn't quite CDs the way we think of traditional CD ROM, but yeah, I, I, you're right. Okay, that's fair too. Yeah, I didn't yeah. Take that in consideration. Yeah, it, I mean, it wasn't the, the the wasn't the way we think of. I mean, it was more akin to like comparing, I guess, the GameCube to to normal CDs would be cl- a closer comparison. But it was a combination of the fact that it was different storage media and the the compression algorithms available for said storage um, medium. You know. If anyone remembers zip disks, it was uh, yes. similar in, in format and size to to, yes. to a zip disk. It was definitely similar. It, it was they were for all purposes they were, but yes, that's a valid point to go from thirty disks on one media to three disks on the other. Does kind of illuminate how great CD-ROM was, and of course we know that this is when they were starting to adopt it. Right, like these were the systems. That made it happen p in pcs it had just happened a few years earlier you know we did episodes on mist and the seventh guest which were the games that were pushing cd-rom development there and in consoles you were just getting into it realistically you had the turbo graphic 16 cd-rom add-on you had the sega cd you had was the jaguar cd base i'm drawing a blank on the jaguar don't hold me to that uh, but you had these systems that were starting to do it. And then, of course, you know, the, the you know, the PlayStation was all in. PlayStation was all in. So it's fantastic. That's unbelievable. That's fantastic. Uh, let's see. So someone asked me, what did I learn today? What did you learn today, Dave? <laughs> did you learn something? I always learn stuff. That's the that's my you know, that's my favorite part about doing this is I learn stuff every single week. The whole point of me doing my research is to find stuff I didn't know, because if I didn't know it, then there's a good chance y'all didn't know it. And that makes me happy. So I never knew about the SIGGRAPH uh, demo. I never knew that 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 CG game where they took Final Fantasy VI and turned its main characters into a battle sequence. I never knew that existed. I never knew. I mean, there were so many fascinating things about it in that, like it looks very reminiscent of 
what we ended up with here. It's interesting to me that it was gesture based and not like a normal input system that they had made it. So you literally like draw symbols for what you want the characters to do. Like the fact that they experimented with that fascinates me. Yeah, that's actually that demo has been really like you can find it online. It was released in later collections, so it's not like it doesn't exist in the world. It's out there. Um, but I I am so fascinated by that. I didn't know that existed in any way, shape or form. So that was that was completely new to me. And that's that. That is Final Fantasy seven. That's an actual history episode of Final Fantasy seven. You know, we talked about Final Fantasy seven as a topic in like our first or second episode. Uh, when when we were talking like games as art, that's what we did. I think it was episode two. We were talking about games as art, and this is one of the games we we brought up when we had discussion about games as art. Full circle. Full circle. Episode one hundred and seventy nine, talking about the history. We've completely changed the format, and here we are talking about the the game from episode one or two. Full circle, Steve Urkel. Well, that'll do it for Final Fantasy Seven. Is there anything you'd like to add to today's episode? As always, Dave, I want to take a quick moment to say thank you so much to all of our listeners. It means the world to us. And also a big thank you to Ryan for joining us. It also means the world to us. So thank you. I do have one thing I'd like to share, if that's okay. Yes. What What is that? We'll allow it. Great. Well, just want to, you know, if you haven't, please consider having your pets spayed or neutered. Yes, thank you. That's... <laughs> That's something I should be promoting every episode. What is this? All right. Well, on that note, it's time to take it in next week. There you have it. We've journeyed through the development history of Final Fantasy VII, starting from its humble beginnings as an SNES game set in New York, through its development into one of the most monumental PlayStation games ever created. And while we've dove into Square's Mako-infused world of Gaia, and wrapped up our quest for today, you might be thinking to yourself that we're finally finished with the rich history of Square's masterpieces. But no, 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 my friends. We are not done yet. Because in the wake of Final Fantasy VII's success, Square was just getting started. There were multiple teams creating different projects, looking to continue the series of successes that Square was currently experiencing. And next week, We're going to explore one of those teams that was looking to create something completely different. And no joke, there are actually various publications that rated our next game higher than Final Fantasy VII. From its revolutionary gameplay to its unforgettable characters, Vagrant Story is a game that deserves its own moment to shine. So join us again next week as we go on yet another epic adventure and take another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Nice. Yes. 